Amen. Good morning once again, everybody. We are so glad that you are here. And one of the great joys and benefits of being uh, Hope, of being One Church, Multiple Locations, is that we get to hear from a variety of pastors and speakers uh, over the course of a given month. And today we're delighted to have Pastor Richard Webb uh, from our preaching team at Hope West Des Moines uh, and from our executive team uh, at Lutheran Church of Hope. We are so glad to have uh, Richard here. He's been chomping at the bit to get here, and we finally got him here. Uh, we, we got him away from his organ-playing duties uh, at the West Des Moines campus. For one morning, we, we got him. So would you give a warm, warm Hope Des Moines welcome to Pastor Richard Webb. It's really an honor to be here. Um, this is the, the third service, so I can go, I'm told I can go for about an hour. Uh, kidding, maybe. Um, but one of the things that I just find so amazing, I was with you all um, when uh, we took First Christian Church's building for a test drive a few, a few weeks ago. And the spirit was just so thick in that place. Um, and I remember John saying that we're not going there to bring Jesus to the neighborhood. He's already here. We're just going to join him. And that is so cool because when I think about that, the building is way bigger than the building because that's a, a church that God used powerfully for decades and decades and decades. Dr. Martin Luther King spoke there. Uh, Elizabeth, was not Elizabeth, um, Eleanor Roosevelt also spoke there. And, and, and so it's sort of like God saying, and, and, and I am handing you this treasure that they have cultivated, and, and I'm going to do amazing things through you just like I did amazing things through them. So... Um, just hang on and watch what God does because he aims to continue to serve the city in a crazy amazing ways for you all. Um, as you have done here and you're going to do there because um, just that's the kind of God we serve is the God who likes to blow our minds. So um, hang on. Um, today we're going to be talking about Revelation and I'm going to just pray for a moment and, and um, then we'll, we'll dive in. So, Lord, we're going to uh, take a look at, at, at your word here, and we want to do more than just take a look. We want to be influenced by it. We want your word to just flow through us and change our lives. So, Lord, we, we say, come, Holy Spirit, be with us. Open our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, that we would sing your praises, and we would literally embody your character and be the good news you've been to us, that we would be that good news to others. We pray in your name. Amen. So um, I heard that John looked at the schedule and saw that this was the um, opening for the series of Revelation for the next several weeks, and he said, well, I'm not going to do that. Make Richard do it. Um, so seriously, he, he, he's just fine. But I, I love to geek out, and so we're going to have a geek morning, and we're also going to have a, a Cliff Clavin morning. What's a Cliff Clavin morning? That's when it's a little known fact, that. Um, and we're going to dive in and, and get the skinny on Revelation and what is it really all about. Um, now, the problem is that most people misread the book. And I, I decided to retitle it the way it would have, should have been when I was in the church. I'll call it the church formerly known as mine, the, and, I, and I will not identify the guilty. Uh, but they literally taught it as if it was the, the book of scary times, hashtag you've been left behind. We even had a song that we would sing in youth group. It goes, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Burn. Um, <laughs> seriously, it was written by this guy named Larry Norman, and, and, and it was really popular. We were all singing how people were going to get burned and nuked, you know, with his cheery voice, his hands in the air. You know, it was bizarre. But you know what? That still is what most... 
most Christians in the United States believe. Nobody else does, but American Christians and British Christians. What's all that about? What's all this left behind stuff about? Well, um, let me just kind of review what that is. If, um, how many of you heard of the rapture or left behind or any of that stuff? Yep, see, that's, we're Merkins. Um, and this is, uh, permeates all kinds of denominations. I'll start out with a little teaser. It's a little known fact that before 1834, nobody had ever heard of the rapture. This guy named James Nelson Darby, very well-meaning Christian, who was trying to help uh, British Christians evangelize skeptics. And the big question in Britain was, how come there aren't any miracles anymore? So they're probably just made up in the Bible by a bunch of primitive, superstitious people because, of course, we now in 19th century Britain are just so much smarter because we are enlightened people. Look, we have the Industrial Revolution. We have new tanks to kill more people. You know, we must be smart. Um, and so there was this idea that we're, we've, grown, we've grown away from miracles. You know, that's primitive. Well, the funny part is if you look historically, there's all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles occurring among Christians in the 19th century and everywhere else but Europe and the United States. Unless it's poor people. But all over the rest of the world, God's doing his thing just fine, except where people have told themselves it doesn't exist, so they've shut down their imaginations. By the way, in philosophy, that's called an imaginarium. And this actually happens. There's this famous film, and, I, and now I wish I had it. It's where this guy sets up a room during a TED Talk and says, you know, there's a difference between gender on how many people can follow a basketball being bounced. So I want you to watch this film, and we're going to see what the count was and see if that's really true, and I won't tell you which gender. So everybody in this room is studiously following this film of a basketball being bounced between people. And at the end of the film, um, the guy asks, you know, he says, okay, raise your hand if you saw the gorilla. And half the room does this and smirks, and the other half goes, what gorilla? You don't see what you don't expect to see. You don't see what you don't expect to see. And that includes a guy in a gorilla suit walking through a bunch of basketball players. And that's what had happened to England. And so Darby invented this thing where he said, well, you know, those miracles were only meant for then, but now that we have the Bible, we don't need miracles because we're so enlightened. And we're so smart. We're the smartest culture that ever was. By the way, that's a really dumb thing to say. Anybody who says you're the smartest culture that ever was is the dumbest culture. Um, I mean, arrogance is foolish, right? So, um, but in the middle of that, he invented this huge end time scheme that starts out that somewhere when nobody knows... Uh, although you can crack the code and find out, even though Jesus said no one knows, it's still there, so don't ignore Jesus, just do your own thing. And, 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 and that half the people will be lifted out of the sky, all the true Christians will be raptured, that's an old ancient English word for lifted up, and, and, and you can see the pretty picture there where people are in, in white robes, there must have been a sail on them, and, and, and they're being pulled out of these cars and they're crashing into each other, so people are dying, and then there's a, you know, the pilot in the, in, you know, in the big 747 that's crashing in, so apparently God likes 911, you know, and, and, and you know, it's kind of gross, you know, and happy rapture, you know, and we used to sing songs about everybody dying, you know, because we were Christians and they were going to get theirs. Is there something wrong with this picture? Uh, let me talk a little bit about what the Bible says. Because let's just say, what does the Bible say about the rapture? Because I figure the best way to find the truth is to go back to the Bible, right? So um, there's one day, and this is recorded both in Matthew and Luke, and I'm reading out of the Luke one, that um, Jesus is, is prophesying the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which indeed was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. 
And he talks about that when you see signs of the destruction of the temple, run. Run as fast as you can. Don't stop. Don't pick up anything. Don't turn around and even look. Run to the hills. And then he says this. He says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two people will be grinding together um, grain. One will be taken, one will be left. And the disciples say, where will they be taken, Lord? Here's Jesus' answer. Remember, this is in the Bible. He replied, where the corpses are, there's there's the vultures. So apparently where the people are getting taken is to the corpse heap. And that was right, because it turns out the ones who were taken were the ones who resisted the Romans, and they were thrown on a corpse heap. So guess what, brothers and sisters? I want to be left behind. Think about that. The biblical answer is, do you want to be taken or left behind? It is left behind. And that's really, really important. Now, so there's a bigger picture, um, but the reason why I say that is because all that left behind stuff all assumes a certain direction that history is going, and basically it's a direction where history gets badder and badder and badder and badder, and then God takes all the Christians, and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and God starts nuking the place, and at the end he just burns it all up by fire, and then we all go off to heaven. Okay, this matters because where you think we're going impacts what you're going to do right now. Where you think you're going impacts what you're going to do right now. So there was this guy named James Watt. He was the Secretary of the Interior during the time of Ronald Reagan, and he could have been during Clinton or Obama. It doesn't matter um, because this isn't about whether he was left or right. And he started selling off all the forests left and right to all the paper mills and construction companies, and the environmentalists were horrified. And they said, why are you doing this? And he says, don't you know? The earth is going to be burnt up by fire, so it doesn't matter. Where you think we're going is going to impact what you do right now. Think about that. And so the question is, how is the earth going to end if it does? Well, let's go take a look at Revelation and see if we can find out. The first thing is we need to think of what is the purpose of this book. Because remember, many people think it's to show the end of the world. Except if we read the very first sentence, Revelation 1, chapter 1. Verse 1. It says, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to read um, you know, anything that's, that's like modern literature, English, especially English, but also any European language, one of the things we try to do is pin down the meaning. We always want to know, what's the meaning of that word? What's the meaning of that word? We try to pin it down. It's the exact reverse when a Jew in the first century writes. They, they, they are kind of economy-sized people. They've gone to Costco to buy their words. And so they want as many meanings as possible. So this word of in, in, in Greek literally means from or about. And so if we had John right here and said, okay, John, which is it? Is it a revelation about Jesus or a revelation from Jesus? He'd go, yes. So let's back it up. A revelation of Jesus Christ. The first word is Revelation. How many of you have seen those films, you know, where people are uncovering something secret in the Vatican to to crack the code of revelation, and now we know when the beasts shall rise? Anybody seen a film like that? You know, where it's a revelation, a code book that you've got to find out, and you can crack the code, and then you'll know when the ancient, when the end of days comes, you know, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, you know, and you can just hear, you know, the Antichrist, I'll be back, you know, and, and... 
you know, and all this stuff. And, or you can see it on TV. There's all these TV series about people cracking the code to find out when the world ends. And they will talk about the apocalypse. Anybody, if you're old enough, seen the film Apocalypse Now? What was the apocalypse? A lot of people got killed. So we, in modern use of that word apocalypse is that's when bad stuff happens on a catastrophically mass scale. It's an apocalyptic event. You know, that's not at all what the word means. Apocalypse literally means to uncover. Revelation means to reveal. So it's the revealing of something about Jesus and from Jesus. In other words, the subject of this is to reveal stuff about Jesus and to reveal stuff Jesus said. So it's the revelation of who Jesus is and it's the revelation of what Jesus has said and what he's going to do. So the book is not about the end times. It's about Jesus. So here we go. Revelation is about who? Jesus. One more time. Pretend you're Pentecostals. Revelation is about? Jesus. Amen. Preach it. Okay, can I get a witness? Um, so this is very important. We have to shift our understanding of the book in the first place. It's not in code, but it's revealed. Well, okay, who did it get revealed to? And this is kind of important because we don't know this, although I got one more thing before we go there. How does it reveal stuff? This is really important. If it's not in code, what about all those weird seeds of seven-headed beasties and, and monsters that are, look like they're put together by committee and, and, and people wearing marks in their foreheads and thunder and blood and light? What about all that stuff? Well, any Jewish reader, that would have not been weird because that's how Jews write about how God acts in history. Let me give you an example in our own culture. So, you might have fallen in love with someone and you described to your friend, oh, when I saw her, my heart just stood still. Does that mean that you had a full-blown heart failure or a heart attack and they carted you off to the hospital and they had to go clear, you know? No. But the event was so big, it's just as big as if I had a heart attack, right? Changed my life. Or how about, you know, we talk about 9-11 and we say, you know, when 9-11 happened, it was like just time stood still. If that were a literal sentence, it would mean we'd all experience the mother of all tidal waves across the globe and earthquakes everywhere. No, no, no. But it was as catastrophic to our country as if it had. So we use, even in, in our own language, this wild over-the-top imagery to explain really, really important stuff that matters and is going to impact us for a very long time. Well... That's the style that runs all the way through the Old Testament and the prophets all the way into the New Testament, all the way to Revelation, is where they use this over-the-top, wild imagery to talk about the impact of God in history. So let me give you one. So once again, if you want to know how to read the Bible, let the Bible tell you. So we are in Acts chapter 2, and what's happened there is we've got all these disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit, and they're in this room, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes down on them like a huge forest fire, blam, you know, tongues of fire everywhere, wind rushing left and right, and, and they get filled with the Spirit, they burst out of the room, and they go into the temple square, and they begin to praise God in as many languages as the people who are gathered together there. And the people often come to the temple from every, every, every nation. All the Jews that have been scattered often make a pilgrimage. And this happened to be the Feast of Pentecost, which was the Feast of Harvest. And so we had people from all over the Roman Empire there. And here's these people praising God in their language and people going, what is this? I can understand them. And these people are not exactly from the university. They were from the north, which was not known for its culture. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and... Uh, 
And then someone else says, no, nah, they're drunk. And then Peter says something very cryptic. No, we're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. And I remember first reading this as a college student thinking, what's the point? Um, <laughs> but then I grew out of that and learned, yeah, if you keep drinking at 9 in the morning, you may want to, you know, like not do that. Um, so Peter's saying, no, we're sober. And then he goes on, he says, this is like what is said in the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the prophet Joel. Here's what Joel does. He's get ready for all sorts of crazy over-the-top language. He says, in that day, I will pour out my spirit on all people because that's just what had happened. Your sons and daughters will prophesy that praising God, that's called prophecy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In other words, God will begin to talk and give downloads left and right to people, whether it's a PowerPoint or a movie trailer or insider trading. But he's going to talk through us because we are his ambassadors. We're his priests, as, as Jesus said in, in, our, in our Bible reading. And then he says this, I will show you wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, which is exactly what happened. All the Christians started praying for people and their lives got changed left and right, sometimes physical healings, sometimes spiritual healings, sometimes emotional healings, sometimes reconciliation, relationships. All this started happening. And then it really gets wild to make the point. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And Peter says, and that's happening right now. Now, obviously, there were no earthquakes because he wouldn't be having the speech. Everybody would be hitting the ground to make sure they didn't fall down. Obviously, there's no lightning and thunder, and, and, the, and the sun seems to be just fine. It's not turned to darkness, and, and the moon's not necessarily red unless it's a little bit you know, uh, red-ish because of all the dust from harvest time. And, and, and Peter says, no, what Joel said what ha was happening is happening right now. Peter is reading the Bible symbolically. So the Bible tells us not to take it literally. And the Bible is 100% God's word from top to bottom with no mistakes. And if the Bible tells us don't take it literally, then don't take it literally. Wow. Now, on the other hand, we do take it very seriously because all of the Bible from top to bottom is God talking and it's trustworthy and you can go to the bank on it because he never lies and he never went, oh darn, how did that get in there? You know. So we can trust the thing. And we can trust it when it says that stuff's symbols because Peter thought so and it got in the Bible, so it must be the case. So, Revelation is about revealing what Jesus is up to, who he is, what he said, and how he's going to get people out of the mess they're in, especially with the Roman Empire coming down on them like a ton of bricks. So who are these people that, is, that, that, that are going to get the revealing of Jesus Christ to them and the words of Christ for them. Well, seven churches, as you heard, to the seven churches in Asia. And there's a map of them, and I'll read them off. It's Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesians, Ephesus, sorry, and Smyrna. And those are real places. And these churches are struggling. They're just loaded with all kinds of challenges. And some of the struggles are real subtle and dangerous. And some of them don't even know they're struggling and they're in deep trouble. And so what are some of the things that these churches are facing? And this is another one. This is, this is another geek thing. Revelation was not meant to frighten these churches. Revelation was meant to encourage these churches. How do we know that? Because every time God shows up, one of the primary commands in the gospel is don't be afraid. Revelation is meant to get their attention, but not to make them afraid. Really important. Just like when Paul quotes Joel, he's getting everybody's attention. He says, that's happening now. 
So the question with Revelation is, through all that crazy over-the-top stuff that's in here, what's happening now? Well, three things are happening. A couple of the churches are suffering deep persecution. They're getting kicked in the teeth. And there's two ways. One is just outright uh, persecution from the police and the military where people are getting tortured and martyred and, and, and people are dying for their faith in Christ. The other is more subtle. It's economic. Because in Rome... Um, you had to worship Caesar every time you bought or sold something. And they literally, you pinched a little incense, and that was like worshiping Caesar as God. Because Caesar thought he was gaudy and ego the size of Cincinnati. Um, you could see it from outer space, from a satellite, you know. And, and there was even a temple in Ephesus dedicated to Caesar. And, you know, in fact, if you'd looked at a, at a coin, this is very interesting. A Roman coin at the time of Caesar Nero, it said, Son of God, Lord and Savior. So when the angels show up to the shepherds and say, Son of God, Lord and Savior, you know what the angels are saying? There be a new Caesar in town, and Nero is not it. Jesus is the new Caesar, and he aims to turn things right side up for once. Jesus is the new cosmic emperor. And so these people, though, were being persecuted because they worshiped King Jesus rather than King Caesar. The other was compromise. There was two pressures to compromise that several churches were facing. And one of them was where you bought and sold was also the pagan temple where all sorts of nasty, uh, unhealthy stuff went on. I mean, just really, you know, like uh, basically you went to the temple and part of the temple worship was with the temple prostitutes. We'll leave it at that. Um, and then you went and, and you ate, uh, uh, you know, there the, re the big restaurant was right next door and they ate all the meat sacrificed to the idols and then they would go and do business and buy and sell. So think of the Kiwanis Club meets every Thursday morning at the temple. Well, what's a good Jesus follower to do? Well, you can't go to the Kiwanis Club, but I gotta buy and sell, it's good for business. Well, you can't go to the temple. Maybe if I went a little bit. It's okay, God won't mind. I'll go to the temple a little bit and do what they ask. Never mind what God says is a healthy way of life. I, if I just engage in that way of life, just a little bit, oh, it'll be good for business. I could donate more in the offering. And so there was compromise. There was business compromise, moral compromise. There was belief compromise. In other words, people were playing go along to get along. And I'll tell you, go along to get along, I don't care what the situation, never ends well because you lose yourself because now you're being defined by whoever tells you to go along. The other one was religious persecution, which was coming from Jerusalem, especially with Jewish Christians were telling people, you got to follow the law before, you, before Jesus matters. It's great that you trust in Jesus, but Jesus died so you could be good. So if you're good, then you'll go to heaven. If you're not so good, you won't. I actually was taught that in the church formerly known as mine. They said, uh, first of all, you got to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And notice the yagata, not yagata. And then you got to prove it really took, so we're going to be watching you. Talk about fear-filled faith, or lack thereof. Yeah, I was terrified every time my parents didn't come you know, home on time as a teenage kid. I thought the rapture had happened, and apparently I, it hadn't taken. So I accepted Jesus at least seven times you know, in, in within a five-year period. You know, make sure it took. I also thought he was a bit of a jerk for being so mean, but I didn't want to go to hell. So get this, I was asking someone I didn't like to be my Lord and Savior, and I thought he was a bad character, but so that I would have a nice afterlife. Yeah, there's something really messed up about that. So, so what is God doing, though? Well, let's see how God responds to the churches that are, that are encountering this challenge, whether it's compromise. Oh, I forgot the most deadly one of all. And this one is really wild. Um, and there was two churches that really had it good. I mean, there was no persecution. 
they were the it places to go. I mean, they were out doing the temple. I mean, the people at the temple were mad because everybody was going to church and, and, and they, their budget was always you know, filled and, and they were so happy. And if you wanted to do business, you went to, you went to the church instead of the temple because that's where all the people were who did the business. And so people were going there just to see and be seen. And, 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 this, is how, uh, and this is how God re- responds. He says, you know, you're in this town where the water isn't very good because way up, you know, at the top of the hill, the water's very hot. And then way down at the bottom down here, when it hits the sea, it's cold. So the people that down, down here, you know, they, they get nice cold water, and up there it means they don't have to boil it. But you in the middle, you get this tepid stuff that just makes you nauseated. And God says, I wish you were either hot like it up there on the top of the valley or cold like down by the sea, but you're, you know... You're, you're literally lukewarm, and that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. And, 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 and so he says, the thing is, you are being lulled by your complacency and your prosperity into worshiping your stuff more than you worship Jesus, into worshiping your popularity more than you worship Jesus. And he says, but you can still return. I will, I, I will reclothe you, which means I'll let you, I, I will give you your true identity. You are mine. And whether you are rich and poor, you are mine. And whether you're popular or not, you are mine. And whether you are competing with the temple and and everybody thinks you're the it place, or maybe you're like that other church where they're being persecuted and poor, either way, you're mine. And at the end of the day, the idol of prosperity, the idol of popularity is a mean God. And it will not go well in the long term. So, so God, so, so Jesus shows up as this amazing friend who tells the truth, but then doesn't just stop there, but then leads you to the truth, leads you to life. He says, I have come to have life and have it abundantly. That's like a good sponsor for someone in recovery. It's you want a sponsor who will tell you the truth and not put up with your stuff. But at the same time, it's got your back and you can't make them walk away. Jesus is the ultimate sponsor and we are all in recovery from sin and our broken selves. And so that's what's going on here. So for one of the churches, and this is one of the churches that's being kicked in the teeth, he, he just says, he just has some promises for them, and I just want to read them. He says, don't be afraid. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the living one. I was dead, and I see I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades, which means I know that you're being persecuted, I know you're poor, but I gotcha, because I literally have been to hell and back for you. And I beat death, which means even your death doesn't get the last word. And even if the Romans try to take you out, you're mine, and you will go past it, and death will not have the last word. And so all the way through with each seven churches, there's, there's truth-telling, and then there's promises. This is what's going on, but I got it covered. You're deceiving yourself, but I got a better way. And every one of its good news to churches under fire, either because of a complacency and prosperity where they're starting to worship their stuff, or because the Romans are coming at them and they wonder, or maybe there's a temptation to compromise because, you know, my business will go better if I go to the temple. You know. So, at the end of every one of this, it, it calls the churches to conquer. 
Now, that's a bit of a hot word because you'll, you'll hear Christians sometimes that get angry and brittle and say, we're going to take this country back for God and we're going to restore biblical morality and we are going to make sure they don't tell us what to do because we don't want them in our churches. Or if you're on the left, it's we're going to push for peace and justice and we're going to kick all the arrogant, bigoted Christians out because we stand for justice and peace. And Jesus will have none of that. Because conquering doesn't come with a raised voice and a raised fist and anger the Jesus way. You want to know how Jesus conquered? One night he took off his uniform as a rabbi and he put on a uniform as a slave. And he filled up a basin. He got a towel and he started washing feet. And that was a foreshadowing of the ultimate way he would conquer where he would not take life, but he would give his life on the cross. And we know from church history, scholars have looked up why did Christianity ultimately become the religion of the entire Roman Empire? Not because they conquered, not because they came in and forced people or shamed people into being Christians, but because they outserved not only their friends, not only their own community, but they outserved outsiders, they outserved their enemies. Wherever enemies came after them, they returned it with love and forgiveness. And their quality of life was just plain better. Women weren't even Roman citizens. They weren't even regarded as humans. But in the church, women were the same sisters of God, just as brothers, and they were created on purpose, for a purpose, and in love, and they were very good. And that's why you read early church history, and there are women pastors, and there are women bishops, and there are women who are head of monasteries. Because women led, even though in the Roman church they weren't even regarded as people. Not only that, but within a generation of the Jesus movement, slavery disappears in the church because it makes no sense for a master and a slave to call each other brother and sister. And the new relationship in Christ overwrote the relationships that the Roman Empire had created for them. And they loved themselves into conquering because we are the army of foot washers. Think about that. We are the army of unstoppable foot washers. Strange army, strange kingdom, strange king whose throne is a cross. But this matters. Now, we, we move into another section of Revelation, and this is a revealing of who God is. Remember, there's always going to be this connection between the God of the cross and the God of Israel because they're the same God. And now John is going to use uh, visual imagery to make the point. So the opening scene starting in Revelation 5 is uh, this gigantic throne room that if, if you look at it from a distance, you think it might be a throne room for Zeus or Apollo or even Caesar because that's what he'd like you to think. And instead, it turns out to be the throne room of Israel's God. And because God hired really, really good when he hired John to write this vision, John incorporates overtones from Ezekiel's wild vision of God's throne room, and, and he incorporates the angels that Isaiah saw when God called him to ministry, and he incorporates the, the four creatures Daniel saw around God's throne room. And so he's saying, the God who made the promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would work through their descendants to restore the world and call all people to himself is now the God who's still on the throne, and not even Nero can kick him off it. And, there, and this is the God who is in charge and will not let you go. But then it continues, and there's this wild scene where this God has, um, has a scroll with seven seals on it. Now, a seal you put on a scroll is like putting a stamp on it or a signature of who sent it. And if, if, if the king of the universe has a scroll with seven seals, it means no one's allowed to open it in, in, except for the person who it's been sent to. 
And so everybody looks around. Who's this for? Who's this for? Nobody can find anybody until John hears something. This is very interesting. We're going to have a series of hearing and seeing, and this is the first one. And he hears, look, the Lion of Judah, the throne of David. And that's, that's typical language of the Roman Empire. The Lion of Judah, that's military language. This is the one who conquers for God's people. Yes, and the throne of David. And the people think of the great King David with his military might and how he went and took over countries left and right and created quite the empire, by the way. But then he turns and sees not a lion, not a mighty king, not a mighty army, but a lamb who was slain. Once again, Jesus conquers not by taking life, but by giving life, particularly his own. And so the one who is the mighty one is the one who was slain for us. John the Baptist earlier said, and I wonder if John didn't incorporate this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus conquers death by giving his own life. Jesus conquers sin by loving people out of it. Jesus' people conquer sin by loving people into a more whole way that is called shalom. There are some churches where if you come there and even if you start following Jesus, they say, now here's the grocery list of things you got to do to get better and you better follow this. Or the Lutheran version of this is, well, you know, it's salvation by grace through faith, so everything's optional, but Jesus would really like you to be a disciple, but you don't have to, you don't want to because you're going to go to heaven anyways, but would you please do it? That's so weird let me tell you why. Three words. Heaven starts now. It's eternal. I'm, I'm pro-eternity. Hope is pro-eternity. But it starts right now, and why would you want to miss it? Discipleship is just getting used to heaven. You don't have to do it, but you get to. And why wouldn't you want to live in heaven? And it starts out by doing the heaven thing. You know what the heaven thing is? The Jesus thing, which is washing feet. We were made to serve. We were made to wash feet. Let's go to the next slide. And, and this isn't, well, actually, it's the one right there. Don't, don't go to the next one quite yet. This is another hearing and seeing. And I searched all over the place for this slide. There is this one more scene of conquering where there's this huge army with, this, this, the, you know, with the leader on this huge white horse ready to charge and conquer the world. And, and it's interesting because every picture I, I looked at when I found it, except this one, had the guy on the horse armed to the teeth like Rambo. You know, zillions of grenades, you name it, they had it. And not only that, he had this big old sword that he was ready to go cut people's heads off, and the army is just loaded with ammunition and bazookas and you name it. But if you read the Bible, that's not there. Guess what the army has? No weapons. They're wearing white robes like they're dressed for a party. By the way, martyrs also wore white robes, so apparently these, these people got killed for their trouble. But they're getting ready to party. So they're going to conquer by partying. Now, isn't that a little bizarre? Okay, then let's talk about the dude on the horse. He doesn't have any weapons either. He says the only sword he has are the words that come out of his mouth. You want to know what the words are? You look on the side of his, his thigh, and there's a tattoo that says the word of the Lord. Again, I believe that the John that wrote Revelation also wrote the Gospel of John where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And there he is on the horse, and when he speaks, truth happens, wholeness happens, restoration happens, life gets put back together, resurrection happens, and the planet is restored. And this leads us to where's the end game of Revelation? 
Is it God burning things up like James Watt said so he can sell off all the forests? Or something else? If you look at the end game, John sees a vision of the heavenly city Jerusalem, which is another, it's a symbolic thing for God's kingdom. And what direction does it go? Down to the earth. And it says that heaven and earth become one. In other words, heaven breaks in in its fullness. And even though we now have little glimpses of heaven where lives get restored and people get their dignity back, imagine the whole planet where everybody gets restored. The planet gets restored. People get restored. It is a global Jesus party, folks. Think about that. The end game of Revelation is not destruction. It is renewal, and, it is a, and it's a party. And I am serious about that. One of the metaphors for the great day of the Lord when everything is put back together is a bridal wedding banquet. And this is the mother and father of all wedding banquets. I mean, it is going to be just the party. As Pastor Mike says, ain't no, ain't no party like a Jesus party. But this party has its origins in a celebration that was going bad fast. And I want to talk about that today. Let's all rise. There was this night that should have been a, a, a joyous celebration, maybe a little bittersweet. It was called the Passover. And Jesus was at this Passover with his followers. But what made this a bit sad was this. He knew that one of his followers, one of his 12, was going to betray him. Another one was going to deny that he ever knew the dude. And the rest of them were going to run away like a pack of cowards. And I can think of two very logical responses. One is to walk out of the room and say, I'm done with you. I'll go get some more people. Or another would have been to just nuke them on the spot. I mean, that's, you know, if someone's going to betray God, what's the penalty for that, right? Let me tell you what Jesus decided the penalty was for. It's a very upside-down penalty. He took some bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He gave it to Judas. He gave it to Peter, and he gave it to the other ten who are all a bunch of cowards. And he said, this is my body for you, broken for you, given for you, because I forgive you. I forgive you, Judas. I forgive you, Peter. I forgive you, Mark. I forgive you, Joanne. I forgive you, Shelley. I forgive you, Toby. I forgive you, Lewis. I forgive you, Olivia. And on and on, each one of us, he says, this is given for you because in this you encounter the forgiver. And so it is given in forgiveness of sins. Now, I think Jesus wondered if they really got it because then he says it again. This time he takes the cup. And this would have been known in a Jewish Passover as the cup of freedom. The cup that symbolizes the fact that God set us free from Egypt. And he says, this freedom cup is my blood. My blood is freedom shed for you because I forgive you. I forgive all the betrayers. I forgive all the deniers. I forgive all the compromisers. I forgive all the wanderers. I forgive everyone. This is given to you in forgiveness of sins. This is the kind of God we have, and this is what heaven looks like. A God who forgives broken, messed up people like us. We call it the kingdom of God, and let's pray for it as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
I'm going to invite the communion service to come forward. Think about this. This crazy piece of bread and this cup of, is, is somehow the kingdom and the power and the glory made present in something as silly as bread and wine. But that's what we are about to encounter. If you're new here and wonder if you're allowed, if you desire Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you desire him to put you back together, if you want to live a life without fear and anxiety and sadness, he can do it for you. Come up here. We're just the wait staff. We do not check the credit cards. Um, the second thing is when you come up, you'll be handed a piece of bread, and you can dip it either in the dark-colored um, wine or the light-colored grape juice. And if you have allergies, we have an allergy-free station to my right. During this time, we'll also worship God in song. Everything's ready. Um, the ushers will guide you to your places. Please be seated.